Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, August 27th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the history of and science behind the icy. Plus, Glenn Fittich is now powering their delivery trucks with spent whiskey and some tips on cleaning your earbuds. Because, come on, how long has it been since you've actually done that? Here are some cool things from the news today. As summer rounds out, let's cool down with the story of what was once hawked as the coolest drink in town. I'm talking about the icy. David Buck recently shared a brief history of the frozen carbonated beverage over at Tedium and shared a few things that I definitely wasn't expecting. So there are three different stories about how the icy began, but they all happened under the tutelage of Omar Nedlick while he was running a Dairy Queen in Coffeyville, Kansas. Nedlick had grown up in Kansas and after returning from serving in World War II, owned an ice cream parlor of his own for a while and dabbled in running hotels before ending up buying a Dairy Queen franchise location. Now here is where the stories differ. Either Nedlick didn't have a soda fountain and therefore put bottled soda in the freezer to keep it cool and sold it partially frozen, something that his customers loved because the partial freezing created some kind of chemical change that led to a pleasing slushy consistency. The other version of the story is that Nedlick did have a soda fountain, but when it broke one day, he threw some bottles of soda in the freezer and same thing, customers were really into it. The final version that sometimes gets told is that Nedlick regularly ran out of bottled soda during rushes and would put some in the freezer so that they could get cold faster. And you know what happens next. Whichever version of the story is true and however the discovery first came about, it was an instant hit. Customers loved these semi-frozen sodas and would request them when they visited his Dairy Queen. So Nedlick, who had always had a predilection for machinery and tinkering, decided he wanted to build a machine to create the slushy drinks on demand. According to Tedium, his first prototype was made out of an old ice cream machine and a car's air conditioning unit. And once he had a successful proof of concept, he teamed up with the John E. Mitchell Company in Dallas to perfect and scale up the machine. They worked to tweak it over a number of years, and in those first few years, it didn't sell so well. The machine was big and bulky and retailed at $3,000. But by 1965, the Johnny Mitchell Company had come up with a number of innovations that turned icy machines into a hot commodity for movie theaters, hamburger stands, grocery stores, and drive-in grocery stores. Speaking to the Dallas Morning News in 1965, VP Don F. Mitchell explained that they had started a leasing program so business need not pay three grand up front and also started providing technicians to regularly service the machines, a job that still exists to this day, which is great, by the way, because it means that icy machines are probably cleaned more often than normal slushy machines, which are cleaned approximately every never. Anyways, back to 1965. In a span of a few months, they went from barely breaking even to having a backlog of 2,000 orders. Now, one thing that I found interesting both in that archival article and in the patent for the Icy Machine is that one of the original pitches for the Icy was that it was a soda that didn't go flat and didn't lose its flavor through dilution from melting ice cubes. They were trying to sell it as a superior form of soda, not as a sort of treat unto itself, which is how I tend to think of it today. 
Maybe they thought it would be the way all sodas were drunk in the future. I mean, they certainly loved the tagline, the coolest drink in town. But how does the icy work? Quoting Eater, The modern-day icy machine is fitted with a barrel surrounded with refrigerant used to keep the mixture cold. The icy mixture flows into the barrel, begins to freeze, and is scraped away from the sides of the machine to form those fluffy ice crystals. Part of that chemistry is thanks to the drink's most crucial ingredient, sugar, which acts as a sort of antifreeze that prevents the drink from freezing too hard like a cube of ice. Sugar is a depressant to the freezing process. When you put sugar in water, that water will no longer freeze at the typical temperature of 32 degrees, says University of Wisconsin-Madison food scientist Dr. Maya Warren. I liken it to salt. When it snows, we put salt on the ground to break up the ice. That helps lower the point at which the ice freezes, and sugar does the same thing. The machine itself is kind of like a soda machine and an ice cream freezer all in one, Warren says. It adds carbonation while freezing the mixture. Frozen drinks don't necessarily have to be carbonated, but the Slurpee's addition of CO2 helps make the drink smoother, says Warren, end quote. Not everything about the machine worked perfectly, however. There's one bug that still remains to this day. Quoting from the original patent, Over a period of time, ice crystals in the liquid ingredients in the chamber begin to increase in size. Eventually, usually after several hours, their size becomes so great that they affect the operation of the machine or a poor quality drink is produced. At this point, it is necessary to place the machine in a defrost mode for several minutes to melt the ice crystals. End quote. You ever been at a movie theater and had them say one of the flavors is temporarily unavailable? That's why. It's defrosting accumulated ice crystals. And as for sugar being a key element in the freezing process, that's why Icy has never really come out with diet versions. On their official website, they state, quote, At this time, sugar-free is not available. Sugar acts as a freezing agent. Without the exact amount of sugar, Icy would freeze up and it would not properly dispense from the machine into your cup. Research is being conducted to make a sugar-free Icy, but no sugar substitutes with that same freezing property as real sugar have been found yet. End quote. And how much sugar is in an Icy? A 12-ounce cup clocks in at 24 grams of sugar, which, like, yikes. At the most generous interpretation, the recommended daily intake of sugar for an adult is 40 grams, but the American Heart Association recommends 24, and really, even that is more than we should probably be having. So blowing all of that in one small-sized Icy, not even getting into the bigger sizes like you get at a movie theater... I mean, hey, on the other hand, for an occasional treat, it's honestly not as bad as I was expecting when I looked up the dietary info. But where did the name Icy come from? Nedlick originally wanted to call a frozen soda Fizzies, but the name was already taken by a candy tablet that you dropped in water to create an instant soda. It was a pretty rad candy that was so popular in the 50s and 60s that it eventually outsold Kool-Aid. Unfortunately, those fizzies tablets were made with the sugar substitute cyclamate, which was banned by the FDA in 1968. Fizzies tried to use various other sugar substitutes, but never really got their groove back and currently are no longer manufactured. Sugar substitutes, man, they'll really shoot you in the foot. But back in the day, fizzies were so king that when Nedlick tried to call his new frozen soda product fizzies, he got hit with a cease and desist order. There are two versions of the story for who eventually came up with the name Icy. 
Nedlick's son told The Oklahoman in 2005 that the company ran a naming contest, but a few other sources name-check Ruth E. Taylor, a local artist and longtime friend of Nedlick's whom he enlisted to come up with the name and logo. She not only named it Icy, but also came up with the icicles on the tops of letters that's still used in the logo today. Icy isn't their only name, though. You may be listening to this segment and wondering, what about Slurpees? When were those invented? What makes them different? Well, here is where my mind was blown by tedium. They're the same thing. And not like some Slugworth figure at 7-Eleven stole the recipe. No, they are literally the same thing. In 1966, 7-Eleven and the Johnny Mitchell Company made a deal for 7-Eleven to license the Icy Machines, but only on two conditions. 7-Eleven had to use a different name, and it could only be sold in their U.S. stores. Slurpees have definitely taken on a life of their own, but they are fundamentally the exact same drink. And since Icy became its own company apart from the Johnny Mitchell company many years ago, they've also branched out to more than just Icy's. They also own Slush Puppies and Italian Ices and apparently even Nitro Coffee, which functions as a kind of Coke freestyle machine where you can add your own flavors to your slushied coffee. I've never seen one before, but it sounds pretty cool actually. And today, Icy sells approximately 500 million drinks a year in stores, theaters, and amusement parks all around the world. And as for old Omar Nedlik, he retired in 1967, just as the company was taking off, but he apparently kept inventing. In 1970, he filed a patent for a fishing rod holder. Officially, the most high-key retirement invention of all time. Good for him. Alright, so this story actually hit the headlines back when I was out of town in July, so forgive me if you've heard it before, but I think that it's super cool. Glenn Fittich has started using their whiskey byproduct to fuel their delivery trucks. The Scottish whiskey maker developed technology to convert the waste and residues from their production into ultra-low carbon fuel, which it pumps into their trucks via fueling stations that they installed in their Dufftown distillery. Quoting Reuters, Stuart Watts, distillery director at family-owned William Grant & Sons, said traditionally Glenfiddich has sold off spent grains left over from the malting process to be used for a high-protein cattle feed. But through anaerobic digestion, where bacteria break down organic matter producing biogas, the distillery can also use liquid waste from the process to make fuel and eventually recycle all of its waste products this way. The distiller said the biogas cuts CO2 emissions by over 95% compared to diesel and other fossil fuels and reduces other harmful particulates and greenhouse gas emissions by up to 99%. Each truck will displace up to 250 tons of CO2 annually, Glenn Fittich said, end quote. They currently have a fleet of about 20 trucks, which were converted from traditional natural gas-powered ones, and in addition to applying the tech to their entire fleet, they're considering scaling up and powering other companies' trucks as well. The Scottish whiskey industry, Reuters notes, hopes to hit carbon net zero by 2040, while Scotland overall is aiming for net zero emissions throughout the country by 2045, five years ahead of the United Kingdom overall. Here's an activity you can do this weekend. When's the last time you cleaned your earbuds? Really, when? Have you ever cleaned them? There are so many items we use every day, putting our hands, faces, and inner ears all over them, and yet we don't clean those items nearly as often as we do our clothes or dishes, for example. 
Part of that is because it's a lot to keep up with, but part of it stems from a bit of confusion about how exactly we're supposed to clean some of those high-tech items we rely so heavily on. You know, you don't want to accidentally ruin something you might have spent a lot of money on and can't necessarily afford to replace right now. I get it. So today, let's talk cleaning earbuds. You know, not only do these get pretty gross pretty quickly, but buildup on earbuds can dampen the sound, eventually enough that you'll think your earbuds are malfunctioning, but really they're just coated in earwax. So if you want my voice to keep reverberating in your ear holes as clear as possible, follow these steps with some regularity. Every brand has slightly different instructions that you can look up online, but here are some general guidelines. First, don't run any of them underwater. In fact, even though most of them are water and sweat resistant, you should be drying them off as soon as you can anytime they get wet. For all brands of earbuds, some basic tools you'll want to clean them with are a clean, lint-free cloth and a cotton swab, like a Q-tip. The main goal here is just removing ear gunk and other buildup. You don't necessarily need to give them a whole disinfectant bath. And in fact, while Apple suggests the use of alcohol or Clorox wipes, something they changed their tune on at the start of the pandemic, other brands like Google still expressly advise against the use of alcohol or other chemical detergents. No matter what brand you've got, though, stay away from bleach and hydrogen peroxide. Now use that lint-free cloth to wipe down the larger parts of the earbuds and charging case, getting the cloth just a tiny bit damp if you feel the need, and then carefully use the cotton swab to clean the smaller crevices, taking off the ear tips if yours are removable. And be extra careful around the speaker meshes. I speak from personal experience here of accidentally having pushed mine in. And whether you use a cotton swab or even a very soft toothbrush, as Google recommends, be careful you're moving it in a direction to pull the gunk out and not just rub it around from side to side. Another method that's been sweeping TikTok lately is to use something like Play-Doh or blue sticky tack to grab up any debris. And while none of the companies officially recommend that method, it does seem to work without damaging the earbuds, so your mileage may vary. And if you want to go even more rogue, but are very careful, you can use something like a toothpick or flattened out paperclip or even one of those little pins that you get sent with a new SIM card to really pull stuff out of there. Sometimes that fine tip is a lot more useful than a blunt cotton swab, at least in my experience. And finally, if you want a totally disgusting but deeply satisfying close-up of a pro cleaning a pair of earbuds, link is in the description box. I've watched this video so many times, but it is seriously gross. Like, a lot of earwax at almost microscopically close levels in 1080p. He uses methods not necessarily recommended by the manufacturers and with tools that you may not have on hand, but dang if it isn't incredibly satisfying to watch. Well, that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone.